I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. So welcome to episode seven. I'm so excited about today's episode. It's the best episode that we've ever had. And I say that not only because seven is my life number, but because seven is a divine number. It's a number of completeness. It's a number of guidance. In the Bible, seven is the day that God rested. And in the Quran, God is being said to have created seven realms of heaven. And so seven is a holy number. And I know that this is a holy episode because usually when I create these episodes, I create them for the listener because people reach out to me and they say, I'm confused about this or this is what I need. But today is an episode that I need. And I think that this is an episode that I'm coming into with more questions than answers myself. And I think that it's better to not run away from that, to not wait until I feel like I have all of the answers and to instead embrace that kind of in-between or that lack of clarity in order to find what it is that I'm looking for and hopefully help you all find what it is that you're looking for. And so that's not an easy process and maybe it will feel like answers are not so definite or so clear or more philosophical than they are advice. And that's fine because I've always told myself that when it comes to difficult times, you can't go over them, you have to go through them. And I think that it's something that we have to do together. And so with that being said, I'm going to get right into my thoughts for this week. And this week, I've been thinking a lot about exceptionality, what it means to be an exceptional person. And I think that I've been thinking so much about that because it's a theme that's come up in a lot of conversations that I've had with people who believe themselves to be exceptional. For example, I was in a class where we were talking about black history and we were talking about exceptional leaders who were chosen like Malcolm X or James Baldwin or Martin Luther King Jr. and this girl was talking about how they had to see themselves as separate from or above their communities in order to do the work that they were required to do because that's what happens to exceptional people. And then later on in the week, I saw and had dinner with a friend who is a notable rapper. And I thought about when I had first met him years and years ago. When I was in high school, I ran a hip hop blog and I met him because I interviewed him and he was a mixtape rapper at the time. And now he has albums, he has shows, he owns a store. He lives out in LA and I just thought about how much he had changed. And he told me that the reason that a lot of other people couldn't change their lives is because they had no drive and they had no discipline. And he himself had become somebody who considered himself exceptional. And I thought about how crazy it was because there was a time when I thought of his voice as being exceptional because it was so closely rooted to his community and such a good and bright and enlightening voice of who he represented. And I think that it's so interesting because now so distant from that is when he views himself as an exceptional person, when in reality to me, he had kind of just turned into another LA nigga. And I think that it's notable to talk about exceptionality because we think that we're exceptional. Exceptional people, they usually know it, but it's very rare that you think about the communities that produce exceptional people, which are usually comprised of quote unquote normal people. And I think about me, who has always been considered an exceptional person, and I think about for the longest time when I thought 
that I was most exceptional was when I believed that I was self-made. But when I began to be treated like I was exceptional was when I was most entrenched and involved with the community that was actually building me. And I think that there is this inextricable relationship between true exceptionality and humility because when you know that you are quote unquote special, it's something that not only comes with a vast amount of responsibility, it also comes with a heaviness and a loneliness. And I think that it's why one of the most moving statements for me has always been Nikki Giovanni. She says in an interview, if you are extraordinary at all in any way, the thing that makes you extraordinary will also be the thing that makes you incredibly lonely. And I think that sometimes people who are not necessarily exceptional by birth, but are exceptional by the circumstances produced by the communities that they're in, they own that exceptionality as something that puts them apart from others and they begin to not be very exceptional at all. Because what's truly exceptional is somebody who knows that they're special or has unique qualities, who knows that it should be the thing and it feels like the thing that sets you apart from everybody and yet they use that exceptionality to make others feel incredible and to make others feel powerful and to let other people know that they're important and that they're heard and that they are represented through one's own exceptionality. And I've been thinking about this not only in a personal sense, but I've also used these thoughts to look more critically at my world because I'm thinking so much about who has been chosen to be an influencer and how influence has taken the place of leadership. And the nice thing about being an influencer is that you get all of the perks of being a notable person with none of the responsibility to your audience to make it mean anything. And so you can essentially be a walking advertisement or collect profits and even be awarded the title of artist or activist under a banner of influence and yet you have no accountability to what those titles have ever historically meant for the communities that relied on them so much. And so I think that I'm reaching a point in my life where it's inevitable that I will gain influence through the work that I do simply because I've been given exceptional qualities to do them and it's not something that I've been afraid to say. But when I think about whether I want to be an influencer or whether I could actually be a leader, and if I had the courage to lead people and to not only say I'm going to take the profits that come with exceptionality, but I'm going to put a community on my back and say, there is no me without you. And as I rise, I will lift. And if they want one of us, they'll have to take all of us. And how if I made that decision, then not only would it be the honor of my life, but it would be the only way to truly pay homage to all of the people who decided that despite the criticism and loneliness and bitterness that comes often with being an exceptional person with being chosen or being apart from. That community, that people are the only thing that make life any kind of worthy and you can't be an artist without an audience or a preacher with no congregation. And I think that I get so emotional about this because I see a world that is so in pain and I see communities of color that are so anxious and depressed and lost and afraid of failure and wondering at this point who they are or what's next for them. And I see people who are supposed to be leading people to understand how to care for themselves 
or how to keep going or to express themselves. And they basically just manipulate and use these communities for their own self gain, knowing that there's an inherent trust for people who are considered beautiful or who are considered talented. And I think that that betrayal of that trust when it's so desperately needed right now is something that honestly on some days kills me. And that's what's been on my mind. So I'm going to get into these questions because you know that's my favorite part. Dear Viv, I'm a creative writing student considering MFA programs. I've thought about applying to schools in NYC, but what I've heard about its cost of living makes me weary, and I'm not sure the art lit scene is all it's made out to be. I have a friend who lives there and loves it, but she's someone who's always wanted to go there. For me, it's just another option. I've never actually been though, so I wanted to know how you rate living there. From my own personal point of view, I don't encourage anybody to move to New York City. I moved to New York City because I had a fully funded education and I had also always wanted to live here, but at the time I was also very young and I think that I had delusions of grandeur from the fact that my mother kind of came of age in New York City, moving here when she was 25. And New York was very, very different in the 80s and 90s and I wanted so badly for that New York to be waiting for me when I got here. But something that I write about a lot when I talk about New York City and when I think about it myself is that New York City is a place to live a lifestyle, not a life. And so if you're interested in living a lifestyle, which means spending a lot of money and aiming to impress other people and show off who you are through the things that you have or the job that you do, then sure, move to New York City. And I feel like that's the place where people thrive the most, where they can be constantly out and about putting on a sort of performance of who they believe themselves to be. If that's not you and you actually like living your life, meaning when you go to the club, you actually want people to dance, or when you go to the museum, you're actually going because you love art and you don't take a picture of every meal that you have, don't move to New York City because not even not being able to catch a break, but just what this city does to you with all of the performativity and phony artists and people who literally come here with money and don't really disclose that their parents are bankrolling their lifestyles. Why would you want this place to be the place that you come of age as an artist when it's just a fake European city so heavily marked by capitalism and wealth inequality? And it is overpriced. It's not worth it. And after I graduate, I'm leaving because the struggle is not worth the reward here. And I want to go to a place where I can feel the sunshine and I'm with people who I know invest their time in me for the right reasons and not because of clout. And I want to be in a place where people love to dance. It's something that I hated so much about New York City is that people don't dance here. They really don't dance. The crazy thing is, is that the most talent I see, the best fun that I have when people are living real lives is in Harlem, but I still can't ignore the fact that when I go downtown to Soho, you have white people, Asian people who are living so lavishly and like have completely gentrified these neighborhoods. I mean, talk about Williamsburg. There's a great documentary called Los Sures, which means the South, about what Williamsburg was before it was a haven for supermodels and lifestyle concept stores. And it was a Puerto Rican neighborhood. It was a majority Puerto Rican Latin neighborhood that produced so much culture, was so big on every salsa scene, music making scene, produced the Latin culture of New York and it's gone. It's gone. And I live in Harlem, 
which is a mecca for black people and has so much black history. And it's also disappearing right before my very eyes. And so don't move to New York, don't. If you're even questioning it, don't do it. Please don't do it because I don't want to be responsible for what I know will be an ensuing sadness the minute that it reaches 40 degrees. Dear Viv, I'm not a healthy eater. I eat a lot of junk food and processed food, but I know it's not good for my body. It's something I'm looking to change, but I don't even know where to begin. I've seen a few of your posts on Twitter about eating habits and was hoping you could go more into depth about what you typically eat and why. So food is something that for me has been at the center of my life for the past four years because it's something that I've had to change my relationship with drastically. And I think that it's more useful to think about food as a relationship than to think about it as a diet, which is a fad, or even a lifestyle, which seems highly exclusive and distant from the way that people actually live their lives. I think about it as a relationship because if I think about it like a relationship, then I can understand it as a struggle, the way that I understand other relationships. And like any relationship, if you have a problem with it, then you have to get to the root of what's causing that problem. Because so many of my eating habits were rooted in a person that I was no longer. And when I say that, I mean that a lot of poor people who grow up with food insecurity, they develop this overeating habit that's bred by an anxiety towards lack. For instance, I grew up on EBT, and if you grow up on food stamps, then you know that at the beginning of the month, you get $100, $200, $300 for your family to eat. My fridge would be filled with tons of food for the first two weeks, and being that we lived with three to four kids at any given time, it would completely disappear in about a week and a half. And so the other two weeks, they were basically portioned out for the very little money that we would have left worth of food stamps. And then the cycle would start over the next week where I would have a tendency when food became available again to just eat, 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 knowing that it wouldn't be there. And I didn't have any consideration of portion size. I just had this constant anxiety that food was going to disappear, that other people in the house were going to eat it. And so I should eat as much of it as possible at once. And that carried over into my adult life. And it really sucked because when I got to college, this dining hall that's open until 2 a.m., where you can get burgers and mozzarella sticks and all types of other stuff that you're really not supposed to be eating, especially not at 2 a.m. And I would just gorge myself on it because I still had that anxiety towards lack that it was all going to disappear the next day. So I had to examine the source of that anxiety. On top of that, I had to think a lot about black people as a community's historical relationship to unhealthy food because I was raised in the South where junk food and soul food are seen as a part of our cultural heritage because of the legacy of slavery that's so deeply rooted to Southern cuisine. And I just saw these foods as a natural good and a part of who I was. And I had to realize later that no, these were things that were actually ruining my body. And that comes to my third point about this relationship. I had to really understand what food does to the body. I didn't understand that vegetables were not optional and that you can't actually have a primarily starched carb-based diet. But even worse than that, I realized that sugar is actually poison. Sugar changes your body's ability to produce insulin in the liver and also changes how your body even processes fat. So even though fat is not inherently bad for you, it's actually necessary to your diet, 
Sugar will inhibit your ability to even produce fat, and so you go into a mode where you just store fat at twice the rate that you would if you were not eating sugar. And I realized it was not a natural part of the human diet. My sister, who's a vegan now, she sent me this movie called Fed Up, which talked about the sugar industry, how it makes kids fat, how it's directed mostly towards poor and black people. But then also I got very, very sick. Like I gained a lot of weight in college and then eventually the foods that I had been eating had broken down my body and made it more difficult to function. And so it was almost out of survival that I had to change my diet. Once I stopped eating candy for even the slightest bit of time, the minute I started again, it tasted like poison. So I cut that out. Recently I've cut out meat. That's not fish. I haven't been eating any meat. I have I cut out dairy because dairy was giving me crazy acne because of the amount of hormones that are in dairy. I stopped eating eggs, but this was all, like I said, because I got very, very sick from it. This was not like a purely vanity or lifestyle change decision that I made. A lot of it was because I just couldn't do it anymore. And I really hope that people don't get to a breaking point with food because for too many of us in this country where obesity runs rampant, it's not until we gain 50 pounds, which happened to me, or it's not until we're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes that we begin to truly understand that junk food and sugary foods are actually poisonous to the body. They're actually poisonous. It's not just, oh, I'm hurting myself. It has to be seen as I'm killing myself. And if you don't truly understand that yet, then you have to do the research to understand why you have such severe depression and how that's being aided by the food that you eat, or why you feel the need to take a nap in the middle of every single day and how that's being aided by the food that you eat, or how you have cystic acne on your chin and your forehead pretty much all the time and how that's being aided by the food that you eat, and how food is actually inextricable from the way that we live our lives, and if you want to live a better life than you have to eat good foods, truly good foods, and vegetables are not optional. Dear Viv, I've been following you for a while now and I've seen that you write about how there's no such thing as multiracial or biracial. I'd love to hear you elaborate more on that. Ooh, I love a black history question. Okay, yeah, so a lot of times I say that there's no such thing as being multiracial or biracial, and this is something that I've gotten into very, very heated arguments about with people who feel that their identities are being erased, but I've never said that there's not something as being multi-ethnic or having multiple ethnicities or even multiple nationalities because those are all very real things. But the concept of race, which is a purely socially and psychologically constructed model is an absolutist model meaning that if it's 1958 in america there's a door for colored people and there's a door for white people there's no such thing as being multiracial, black and white at the same time and if you have any real idea about slave narratives there was a one drop rule meaning that if you had even one drop of african-american blood then you were black and you were to be considered a slave and you could not be freed and that was used to justify obviously the sexual exploitation and rape of black women by white men and so that even though if your father was white because he was a slave master and overseer you yourself were black because your mother was black it wasn't until the 1970s with the quote-unquote free love movement that interracial coupling started to be seen as socially acceptable 
and white women wanted to have children with black men, but they didn't want their children to be marked as black. And so they invented, white feminists invented the concept of being multiracial or being biracial, being two things at once, so that they basically got the privileges of being quote unquote mixed, even though there was no real cultural identification with mixedness because you can be black and Asian, black and white, and those are considered mixed even if you come from multiple completely different diasporic cultures. You could be considered quote unquote mixed and function on a banner away from blackness. And so it's not just that there's no such real thing culturally as being multiracial or biracial, but it's also been used as a social tool to distance people from blackness. And in that, it is an anti-black term. And that's why people get very, very frustrated. But this is not an opinion that I have. This is the historical resonances of the word. And even if you look at how in slavery, mixed raceness was used to distance yourself from slavery by either passing as white and therefore functioning as a white person in society and being able to exploit black people the way that white people did, despite the fact that you were actually genetically black, or it was used to gain access to the big house. And so in some ways you could live a less harsh life in slavery just by being approximated to whiteness. And so mixed raceness, multiracialness, and biraciality have always been used as tools against blackness, and they're historically not actually cultural figurations or associated with any definite ethnicities. They're just considered multiracial or biracial, which we know has social connotations of goodness, of innocence, of beauty, and those have all been weaponized against black people. So that's that on that. Dear Viv, I've had a few jobs since graduating in both the public and private sector. I've always felt that in all positions, I'm a force of perpetuating capitalism. How do you reconcile having to pay bills with hoping for the downfall of capitalism? Well, let me tell you, it wasn't until I was working on Wall Street that I truly, truly wanted capitalism to end because it was in there, and I'm sure that you have the same experience, that you see the true evil of the whole ordeal. And if you're at a job that you hate, I think that you should quit it anyway, but I wouldn't beat yourself up about trying to find an ethical job that fits within capitalism because it's damn near impossible. Unless you're working at a bank or a police officer, I wouldn't worry too much about the ethics of your job. Those two are the last standing bastions of protecting capitalism. And in that case, they must be completely dismantled. And if you're working for them, then yes, you should feel incredibly bad about yourself. But if that's not the case, then I would say in your private life, you should spend time organizing and spending time at the organizations that you feel have radical causes that all contribute to dismantling capitalism. I have a friend who organizes every weekend for tenant rights in Brooklyn, and I have friends that organize against prisons. My sister is very passionate about organizing to dismantle food insecurity in low-income communities. And so you just have to find a cause, and pretty much any noble cause will be assistive in dismantling capitalism. Recognize it as such but also challenge your friends who see capitalism as an inherent good or as something that can't be dismantled. Understand that there was a historical period before capitalism that not every social system in the world functions under capitalism and work to dismantle it. 
And also, if you're somebody who votes, then you need to not be voting for Democrats. Because I think that the thing, especially in the black community, is that even people that understand that these social systems don't work for us, these economic systems don't work for us, they still think that the best that we can do is Kamala Harris for president. And we can do better. So if you're somebody who votes, which not everybody does, choose socialist leaders. Don't choose Democrats because Democrats are full on capitalists. They always have been and they always will be because they'll always have to be. Vote for socialized healthcare, vote for socialist policies, period. And finally, dear Viv, do you have enemies? If so, do you love your enemies? If so, how do you love them? This is a question that I've been trying to answer for years because I was a hothead and that always comes with being smart where I wanted to hate everyone who disagreed with me at a point and I thought that that was a mark of my intelligence and my strength and it came to the point where sometimes people saved my life quite literally by disagreeing with me and it was the way that they showed me love was to show me how wrong I was and so then it complicated my notion of an enemy and then when I began to study the Quran when I got older I encountered the concept of jihad or holy war and it's something that's been co-opted to mean physical fighting but then in certain other traditions like Sufism it is internal war and when I think about holy war on an external level it meant besting the people that I thought were trying to bring me or my community harm so that meant hating pretty much all white people at a certain point literally hating white people and I hated all police in fact I still do hate all police and I think that it was that unconditional hate for so many people and even just individuals who I had actually been physically fighting in my life or hating people who had wronged me on a personal level like men and realizing that I had so much anger towards so many people and yet it did me no good and it didn't make me smarter and actually it did not make me stronger fighting those people because then I discovered this internal concept of jihad where I realized that my greatest enemy is myself. And it's something that seems like such a cliche, but I don't take it lightly to say that because there was times when I looked in the mirror and just to tell myself, you're not who you think you are. You're not perfect. You're not without fault. You can be very petty, very jealous, very angry. And those are things that you have to deal with if you want to love yourself and if you even want to be an authentic person and a leader in the world. And so now I'm on this mindset where I've been thinking so much about how I'm my own worst enemy and the ways in which I get in my own way. And so my enemy is myself. And when you ask, how do you love your enemies? You forgive them. And that includes forgiving myself for the ways that I fall short, but also forgiving the people that wrong me because I realized that it's very rare that people actually hold malice in their hearts towards you. I realized that people do so much unconscious evil and that they live without intention at all and in that way they just knock things over and fall into people and hurt people unconsciously and you forgive them for they know not what they do and in that way you find peace but also you focus on yourself and the fight that you have in yourself because I know that I'm not just my own worst enemy because I'm young I will always be my own worst enemy 
and I will always be the person that when youth disappears and these people that I fought and these petty relationships with men are falling by the wayside to the point where they're not even a memory, I will still have to live with myself and I will still have to fight myself because if there's anything worth having or any person worth being, it's somebody that I'm going to have to fight for. So that's all the time that we have for today. It has been freeing in a way that I can't even truly describe to you. If you've made it this far in the episode, I thank you so much for listening. Please, please, please submit questions for episode eight because it is our Valentine's Day episode. We are talking about nothing but romance, love, the philosophy of love, love as it exists in popular culture. And I'm so excited for that because there's nothing that I love more than celebrating love. And I think it's a very important part, aside from all the consumeristic tendencies that Valentine's Day produces, to recognize love in our lives and to celebrate it. And so I'm so excited to do that. It's been real as ever. Happy Black History Month. More life, more love. I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Me.